You're listening to the Plus Music Podcast with Brian and Nick, where we sit down with artists, founders, video game music composers, and discuss early ideas, challenging hurdles, and how the ever-changing music industry will evolve in the digital age. Today we're sitting down with founder of Cross Border Works and music business veteran, Vicki Nauman. Vicki joins us from Los Angeles and talks to us about her long tenure in the music business from being president of U.S. Business for the global music company 7Digital, her consulting firm Cross Border Works, where she works with up-and-coming companies in consumer electronics and music, and also doing music licensing for one of the biggest games in virtual reality today, Beat Saber. Here's more from Vicki now. Thank you. Hey. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, lots, it's lots in there. Lots in there. <laughs> We're gonna pick it apart. Yeah, let's uh, let's start at closer to the end. Um, let's start with uh, Beat Saber. I think you know most people have heard of that game, and it did real well and made a lot of money for the musicians and people that made the game. And uh, I think got acquired by Oculus, right? Um, yeah. And uh, which is now Meta. Mm-hmm. the meta company so tell us how, how you got involved with with that game and um and the the challenges and tribulations that had to come with licensing all those tracks yeah mm-hmm. well it was um i got introduced to yaroslav back and the the beat saber is a uh uh prog based company mm-hmm. and so i got introduced to yaroslav and he's a composer He's um, and he's a co-founder, you know, co-founder of, of Beat Saber, and um, and it's it was kind of a, a typical story where um, they had been going around trying to talk to labels and trying to figure out how they were going to integrate music into the game, and they just didn't didn't have the relationships, they didn't have the understanding of what set of rights you need, they didn't really know how to have those conversations and so he was really frustrated by the time i met him oh yeah sure you know and he was kind of and this happens a lot when people try to go about this themselves and and they're like you know well i talked to you know i talked to warner music and they said x and then i talked to universal and they said y and then there's this whole publishing thing and how do what what is going on and Mm -hmm. um and so, you know, it was really a matter of, of me kind of like seeing the opportunity that this is not some sort of, um, you know, unfunded startup that has not, doesn't know how to execute and can't build a product. This is a game that has, is getting a ton of traction. This was probably, I guess it was probably like late 2018, early 2019 when I met them. And so it was really like a lot of people were buying headsets, VR game, you know, VR headsets, and they only were doing one thing, which was playing Beat Saber. Mm -hmm. So I felt like there were all these indicators that told me, you know, this is, this is actually going to be something really, really good for music. If we can get the, if we can get the model right. So at that point, Beat Saber was in the store. They had some music on there. It just wasn't like Panic at the Disco or any of the stuff that came yeah, out. Yeah, what what was uh, the music? The music that was in there, and we still have this, where we basically released these original soundtracks. And that was the composer 
exactly contributing to that got it exactly and so Yaroslav it was Yaroslav and his friends and you know different cool. group of composers and it's music that was really custom designed for the game it's a rhythm based game so you know you, you the 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 music that does really well has really really significant beats and rhythm and then the then the gameplay is programmed to that so all of the songs were in there free to play and um, and the first thing we did was a monster cat integration, mm. and then um, and then we wanted and to monster do cat for everybody who doesn't know monster. That's a it's a, a library of label. music. They're a label. It's a label of, out of Canada, and they they just they have the, the they control the master in publishing. So it's a really and they're very forward thinking. And so I, you know, I really like the company and they, they've got great music that really resonates with, with gamers. Mm. Um, so that was, you know, that was the first thing that we did. And then we wanted to do Imagine Dragons. And, um, and that was a big, that was like, you know, when you're in the foothills, you're in the foothills of, of, of music licensing, and then you want to go Imagine Dragons, and that's getting Universal on board and all the publishers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was, you know, I often talk to early stage companies, like, like, you know, your first licensing deal is always going to be the hardest because everyone sees that they have to take a risk. Yeah. But, um, but we really just w- went around and, and talked to all the labels and publishers, created a model that everyone could understand, you know, mapped out exactly how all of it works because it is, you know, once you get into all the different gaming engines and platforms, it becomes, it becomes very complex. And, um, and significantly at the same time that we were having the conversations about Imagine Dragons, that was when Marshmello did a DJ set in Fortnite. Uh, okay. And, um, and I've been on one of these people for probably 10 years, been talking to the music industry saying, look at gaming, look at what's happening in gaming, you know, low friction, free to play, making companies making billions of dollars out of in-app purchasing. And the, the industry just kind of, you know, could quite wrap their heads around it. There was garage band, there was our guitar hero, um, rock band, Tony Hawk, Tony Hawk broke a lot of bands too. Yes, exactly. And so there were only really a few things that had music in them. And at this time, the labels were off, were also thinking, well, you know, we want to license our whole catalog to to the gaming industry and it's like the gaming industry doesn't want your whole catalog i'm sorry to tell you that your whole catalog is great for spotify and apple but not not for games it's really specific Mm -hmm. but um but when marshmallow did this set in fortnite it changed the industry's perception of of the opportunity for music and gaming and it didn't the this aha moment didn't come from the digital business teams or any of the licensing teams it came out of marketing and a and r because they saw that marshmallow just did a set for 10 million people now not mm. every not everyone who's in fortnite has an audience of 10 million people but marshmallow did that and and that that rippled throughout the industry. And I think that people started recognizing, wait a minute, this is, there's more to this than just licensing music. There's a marketing opportunity. There's a promotions opportunity. There's a consumer engagement because you, you 
hear music differently when you're gaming yeah. than when you just have it playing in the background of your house. And exactly. so that it, sh it shocks me though that that the opportunity or that at least the writing wasn't on the wall as far back as even those Tony Hawk skate ramp games and the EA, I know my band got into a MLB baseball game and anywhere from Des Moines, Iowa to Dusseldorf, Germany, someone would say, heard your music in that game. It's like it can reach an audience that radio, print media, and even MTV can't reach. Yeah, I think that's that's an amazing observation. And um, and I, I think that a lot of people in the industry, they they just looked at it like it's just kind of this one-off thing. Kind of cute. Of, Kind of yeah, cute. and then you know, other people do it. And for yeah. the few songs that get into the, you know, these, you know, a handful of games, they do really well. But how do you scale it? They, nobody could figure out how to scale it. It's still kind of challenging because it, yeah. you know, it isn't, it isn't something that, you know, like in the old days of radio, we knew I used to work in radio. So you know, we knew we had one signal and we had an audience that we were trying to reach and we curated music really, really carefully to that, to what would be meaningful for that audience. But then when digital came around, it was like, we're not going to do any more curatorial work. We're just going to make all the music available to everyone all the time and let people decide, let people mm -hmm. find what works for them. And in gaming, it, it just doesn't work that way. You know, people have, you know, they want music that it fits to build suspense or that's, you know, part of a climactic scene or, you know, gameplay, or you want music that's like in Beat Saber, you want music that's really rhythmic. And so it requires a lot of time and attention to find the right songs. And I think the industry just, was like how do we how do how do we participate in this and yeah I, let I me ask let me ask now. you a question about that right so um you know the industry is it's funny because like so many people in the music industry when you meet them they're pretty forward-thinking pre people they typically you know <laughs> know a lot of uh, they're they're right on the edge right um but for some reason collectively the industry is a few steps behind it seems like from its adoption and ability to be in the sort of the fringe and digital mm -hmm. yeah well just the fringe of like of innovation right and i'll just like we could frame games as back then like these were this is where the the bleeding edge of innovation was and still is uh from an engagement point of view from aggregating so many people from just entertainment interactively what what makes the industry so slow to react well it it's it's a really good observation because this is also something that is oftentimes it's this really counterintuitive thing there are many counterintuitive things in the industry but this is a big one that people look at and they're like oh music is music is defining culture artists are defining sounds and culture and tribes and you know and communities it's right on the right on the bleeding edge but the industry those are artists mm -hmm. and then there's individuals who may have that mindset but the industry as a whole partially because of rights it's mm -hmm. it's all 
tethered together. So it, it, it's like a big tanker in the ocean that takes these huge wide turns. And once it starts turning, then everyone can participate in it. But mm-hmm. you have to get like for gaming, you have to get, it's a synchronization license. So you have to get the master and all of the publishing. And so for, you know, like when I do sync licensing for games, I go, if there's 10 publishers on every song and I'm licensing 10 songs, that can mean we do a hundred contracts. And that wow. does, it doesn't make sense for very many companies to yeah. do that. And so- And I think you nailed it with even the, I mean, some of these laws and, you know, copyright and licensing laws are 150 years old. I mean, I would just even the slowness to let music be in social media. I mean, there was 3 billion people a day on social media for seven years before the music business decided to let music in stories or even TikTok. It's, it's just something of old language and a new opportunity. Well, it's, it's true. And we've, you know, and, and the way that we have rights parsed out where there's the master recording, sometimes there's one owner, sometimes there's two, there can even be three if there's featured artists. And then publishing, we have an average of, I think, seven songwriters per song now. And in Jeez. certain, and in certain in, like certain styles, like rap and, you know, electronic music, it, and pop music, very often there can be, you know, like I have done some licensing for electronic artists, you know, upwards of 14 writers. And in the one sense, from a licensing standpoint, it can be really frustrating because you're like, oh my God, like all of this is being held up because of 1% because there's one writer in Brazil who is self-published and he's not answering any emails or calls, you know, like yeah. we, we can't do this until we get him to sign. What a nightmare. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's interesting. I just was thinking about like that moment. There's a this is nerdy for the, for the people that don't care about business, but there's a term in business deal. It's called drag along, right? So um, if you, you, the, the real small percentage people, when the majority decides just comes along. Right. Yeah. And in music, there it's if it almost seems like every song should have a, a little tiny corporation built that's got its voting rights like handled already, and it, it that just, would be a great idea. Actually, gets <laughs> I, well, I, I, that's leading us to what smart contracts are can offer the industry, which is early on you just get everybody on board and everybody signs off and then the song is able to be commercialized, you know? Uh, the, the, the issue, the issue, and I think like everyone who gets into this business and I was definitely one of these, when I first started doing all this licensing, I was like, this is insane. This is insane. We have to fix it. We have to make it more efficient. And what I've realized is nobody really, nobody really wants it to be that much more efficient. They like the, most of the like, they like, they the, like the control and they, they, they want to negotiate every and they want to know how their music is used and in sync specifically like when you talk about the drag along like in spotify apple music type subscription services 
it, you, the, the law has changed to make it a blanket license, but it used to be that if you got one share of one song on the publishing side, if you got one share, you were, you were able to use it. And so you would not infringe. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't apply in synchronization. And the other issue with synchronization is that artists and, and writers all have reserved the right of approval for use of their music in any kind of sync, whether it's a big Hollywood blockbuster film, an indie film, a game, or a video. So, so, so they have to go out to get every writer to say yes. That so just let's, sounds let's, like such a nightmare. Let's kind of <laughs> let's kind of let's kind of dig in there, right? So you've got you know, we won't, won't turn this into like a, a masterclass to understanding songwriting or song rights and mastering <laughs> composition. Uh, Google will do that. But when when you're doing synchronization and, and then they're, they're like that, if you're an artist and your brand is basically everything you're doing and all of a sudden your music shows up and, you know, let's say you're uh, ultra Christian as a as an artist and your you know music's going over a Planned Parenthood commercial or something and there's a big big issue with your whole entire fan base Uh, I can see in those cases where you know the brand has to have some 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 say um but I think a lot of artists just like miss the you know they don't even have that brand built yet so they just it's just more of like a it just slows everything down. And even in those cases, it'd be better just to click a button. It, this is available for tobacco related or not, Ness. Uh, click a button, X, Y, Z, like all of the different Shooter industries game. in yeah. which you can like be in or not, like should be a binary decision, yes or no, yeah. to simplify. Yeah, well, and, and this is starting to happen. And we have, there's all sorts of, you know, sync licensing platforms that have mostly independent music in them. There are companies like CD Baby that have, dis- that distribute independent artists, but they also have the publishing administered. So, and there these, what I call, and you, you guys have probably heard me say one-stop catalogs where they're not production music catalogs, but they may be, um, uh, like a BMG would control both the master and the publishing. Maybe they administer both sides. And so there are things that are happening to simplify this, but where it always stops is the majors. And yeah. so, you know, and so there's a, there's, and I find that now there's enough music in kind of synchronization platforms production music, one stop that you can really get quite far. And those are much simpler rights where usually you're doing one license for all of the master and the publishing rights. And, Mm -hmm. um, and then you get into the major label world where you're chasing down every single share all over the world from different, different writers. And, um, and they do have, and, and your, your comments are exactly what people want to prevent. Someone who's a recovered alcoholic or recovered smoker does not want his or her music in a 
you know, in an, in an ad or a film where there's a lot of smoking or drinking. Um, mm-hmm. And there's plenty of examples where things have been synced, and, you know, and they are really inappropriate because of something the artist has done, you know, so it can backfire <laughs> in both directions, but ultimately they want to know where their music is. And most of the time, if you have a good compelling offer, I, I love working with the sync teams at the major labels and the major publishers because they, they hustle. And if you yeah. have, a, if you have a good offer and you ha- if you have a compelling business model that they can understand, um, they will do their best to try to get mm-hmm. the artists and the writers to say yes. It's yeah. And I would think even the majors are, I mean, I could just think like historically, things are always going a certain way. Now, all of a sudden, instead of needing a record label to go fund a record and make an artist get to the next level, you got Pro Tools and Logic that came out and artists can now record in their own house. Then you've got distribution platforms, TuneCore, CD Baby, Distro Kids that you don't need an ADA or a WIA anymore. You don't even need a record store because there's Spotify's and iTunes. You could kind of, I would think that there was a little bit of panic ensuing in the, in the major publishing and licensing business of traditionally things are getting away from us here. Let's keep control and keep things a little bit buttoned up going forward, as opposed to some of these new indie all in one stop shops who have the flexibility to just say, come on in. We're open to anything. Well, to, to frame that into a question for you, Vicky, um, you know, if you're, if you're, if, if an artist came to you and said, Hey, I'm trying to get my career going. I got a little something happening. Um, I mean, if they just say, I want to be a musician, usually the advice is we'll go write some songs and do some recordings and then, you know, but let's say somebody has got to a place where maybe, maybe there's some managers, some, some publishers, a label sniffing around. How do they make a decision in today's day when you've got, well, I could do an NFT project and maybe that would net me a bunch of money just cause it's super hot or Maybe I on exclusive deals. Maybe I could do a bunch of different things, like or maybe a label still a decent option is you know for some for some folks. What what do you think? Is there a, is it different for everybody or? It's a little bit different for everybody, but I think that one thing that's happening right now is you know we, we hear a lot about the creator economy. And, um, and, you know, the music creator economy is a subset of that. And this has been undergoing transformation really for like 15 years, where we first started seeing things like CD Baby and independent distribution. CD Baby and TuneCore were kind of the, you know, the original, the OGs of, of that world. Um, there's a lot of companies now that have jumped on the bandwagon because the you know, increasingly, you know, people who are independent creators, they're defining their, they're defining success really differently. They don't necessarily see signing with a major label or with an independent label as something they want to do. They Mm -hmm. may look at, they may look at, at all of the social platforms and say, okay, I'm building up my following. I now have amassed an engaged group of followers. I feel like that's a really, really critical thing, not just how many likes, but how do people 
engage with what you post? Do you have reactions? Have you built somewhat of a community around your art? That's really, really important. Um, you know, so you have to do that. You also need to make sure that you understand where your, how your rights are managed, get a really good publishing administrator and a good distributor, um, admin, admin your, your music so that you can control it if, and then have some people that help you with sync and, and consider you know, other ways that you can bring your fans in closer and see how far you can get. And I so think- I think Real, real quick to pause there, to go back a couple, cause you used some terms that maybe people wouldn't recognize like an admin uh, for your rights. Um, that would be like yeah. a cobalt style business. Exactly, right? exactly. Okay. So there's, you know, you can do like in, in publishing and with labels, you can have, you can do a traditional deal, which is usually where you get an advance, you get to be part of that company's promotion machine, their marketing machine. You probably have, you know, if you're a writer, you probably have your publisher, you know, putting you together with other writers. If you're a performer, the labels might say, hey, you should really get in the studio with these producers and with these other artists. Um, you're part of this and in exchange for that, you give up control of your rights. So you let you, you it, the label owns your master and publishing owns your writing. And, um, and the converse of that is if you're having administrators, then that may mean that you go with Cobalt or Song Trust, you put your compositions in there, they represent it, they collect you know, the average, each composition can have 600 different income streams globally. So it's, it's extremely difficult for a self-administered songwriter to actually collect any money. You know, there's Spotify uses, there's direct licenses, there's radio uses, there's terrestrial broadcasts, there's TV broadcasts, there's downloads, there's TikTok and social, I mean, all of those things have different points of monetization collection. So an administrative partner does a lot of the same kinds of things that a traditional publisher does, but they're not necessarily doing any of the other, they're not marketing you or anything. You just, they're just collecting and monetizing your, your rights. And so if somebody can't get Cobalt to do it and they use CD Baby instead, they're not going to be collecting at the level that Cobalt would be, right? But they will be collecting for all of the partners that they have listed. So, Absolutely. you know, you can usually release a song on CD Baby. There's probably like 20 or 30 partners, Spotify, Apple, all those things are in there and some random ones you've never heard of. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I would say... I would say that that they they are comparable, and you know, in in how many places they collect. I think that you know, Cobalt, now that they sold AWOL to the Orchard, now they're just you know now they're more of a publishing administrative company, and they do also do some traditional publishing deals. But um, but if you're distributing your music through CD Baby, CD Baby is owned by Downtown, and they use Song Trust to administer the publishing for CD Baby artists. So you can have your sound recording 
in CD Baby distributed, I think they have like 150 DSPs that they distribute to all over the world. Mm -hmm. They collect on that for the sound recording and then Song Trust collects on an equal number on the publishing side. It's yeah. still a lot for an artist to keep track of. I mean, in my own, the apex of my career's music was on Atlantic. So my masters are owned by Warner. My publishing split down the middle, half by Sony ATV and half by Universal. Okay. We have a joke in our band that our music is in musical prison because we can't make any decisions about that. And since the time of relatives was 15 years ago, how active are they actually pushing something that's still under an exclusive and owned catalog and how would an artist even navigate ringing a doorbell and saying can you get me into Beat Saber is there anything I can do or is it you signed when you were young this is the terms and now you're kind of SOL well I think there's always things that can be done but there are a lot of artists that are in your position where they they signed a deal years ago there are many artists that are in worse positions because you know the especially label business is kind of like venture capital where you're like, okay, we're going to bet on 20 artists. And if one of them pops, then the label's really happy. If you're one of the 19 that didn't, that didn't do really well and your music can either just get shelved and never even released, mm -hmm. and then you don't, you don't have access to it at all, or it gets released and it never gets promoted or worked. Um, mm -hmm. But artists, you know, I've had lots of people contact me about Beat Saber, all sorts of artists that will come and they'll say, you know, I love this game. You know, is there any way that my music can get in there? And I'll say, well, where is your music? And they're like, well, you know, my the, the master is at Sony and, you know, my publishing, I have, you know, five different people that I've I've worked with. And so it is possible to do that. And then, you know, and I feel like more and more, there's a kind of a new breed of artists who don't want to be, don't want to have to say, well, my music's over there and you have to go negotiate with 10 people totally. to get access <laughs> to it. They're the ones that are saying, I want to own, I want to own my creative direction. And I also want to own my rights so that I can do whatever I want with it. Yeah. But, but if you want to be a billboard top artist, almost all of those either have huge teams around them and almost all of them are on the majors. And yeah, there's so only like one or two that you can think of in the recent past, like Tyler, you know, was uh, not Tyler, the creator, but. Uh, yeah, he was definitely one of them though. There was one, there was another one in that same time frame that he, this guy just got a bunch of investment from some, some investors and he was able to kind of cobble together a label sort of like scenario where he had a team working and, and it worked out really well for him. Um, because part of the, there's a myth that, that a DIY creator, that you don't need a team, all you need are tools and that's all. And, and it, it is really a myth. It, it, yeah. it, it doesn't play out when you have any kind of a following and, and a, you know, multifaceted career. And even when people look at, looked at that Tyler, the creator, and a lot of people looked at that and said, well, look at him, look what he did. He got $600,000 from Apple. And so, you know, his whole wow. team fed off of that. And so 
you know, how do you pay if you need a team, if you need a manager and an agent and a promo person and someone to help you on touring and the social media person, you know, how do you pay all of them? You yeah. have to have access to capital somehow. Yeah. And, and a lot of those, yeah, it's a very complicated business. It's such a complicated. That's why no indie musician quits their day job. They need the income to support every other facet of the business they need to start. <laughs> but I do feel um, like with with the you know with everything around Web three, there are so many opportunities where creator tools are being built into all of these platforms, where for creators to just engage directly, and that's a really exciting that's a really really exciting space. For can, you, young, can you give us yeah. some highlights of things that you've seen that that you like? Well, yeah, I think you know when I think of Web three, I you know I I put everything in the spectrum of that of AR, VR, immersive experiences, um, the NFTs, decentralization, blockchain, people being able to have their fans. You know they can they can fractionalize their rights and have their fans invest and own part of the rights and everyone benefits if their streaming revenues go up. Um, NFTs, there's a ton of hype around that right now, but I think that there I believe that this is going to be here to stay. And there's you know we'll probably go through a couple years of you know fraud and and too many marketplaces for the market to support. But over, I would say the next three to five years, we will really see a, a maturation of everything in that space. And, um, you know, and, you know, interestingly, when you talk about this Web3 world, there's, um, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of traditional music industry people who are like, hmm, everything over there is artist centric. And how are we going to participate in an artist centric world? We want a catalog centric world. And so there's a lot right now, I think of traditional industry people looking at everything and saying, how are we, how are we gonna make that work? But, um, but like one really interesting you know, like look at what Warner Music is doing. You know, they're they've got 21 pilots in Roblox. They're working on a number of different shows in Roblox and virtual worlds. Universal, they signed um, the the you know one of the the board apes in the board ape yacht club, and they're making oh, yeah. a band a band which is kind of like I feel like well it's kind of like the Gorillas. They were the original Avatar band but now there's going to be the board ape so we'll see that's kind of universal like saying we don't necessarily understand all of this but let's bring some of it into what we know which is how to make a sound recording yeah um, and that's it, it's interesting because in that in that particular case all they did was this grab they grabbed a brand that already had brand recognition and then they just applied music to it that's a thing that's happened, I think, since social media is a lot of a lot of people are coming, they build a platform and then they add aspects to their platform, like being a musician, you know, like they'll add music to the fan, but and it could have just been an influencer to start, right? Um, yeah, yeah for a, sure. For sure. And and artists who are 
visual artists, you know, then maybe they start dabbling in podcasting, or maybe they are also musicians who want to do some visual art and make an NFT out of that visual art and cover art for their music. And so I, I don't think that any artists now feel the need to be in a, in these boxes. They, they see all the tools and all of the platforms as ways that they can express themselves. And, um, and there are companies that are building specifically for that, for that economy, like downtown, you know, like they sold all their copyrights this year. So they don't own any copyrights anymore. They are just administrating some really high profile, you know, some, you know, very, very, the biggest songwriters ever um, to, down to Song Trust and CD Baby. And they're just a service, a service business now. Hmm. So you'd think maybe in the coming years, if not already, the major label circuit might have to adapt or loosen their grip on certain things with the other side, independent creators gaining their audience independently on different platforms, arguably could maybe take opportunity away from the majors who still like to do things maybe the old way. I think, you know, especially with what you do at Cross Border Works, you probably see loads of companies and new ideas coming that could benefit independent creators. And I would just think that the majors have to start thinking about loosening their grip as far as what they've done traditionally. I don't Absolutely. know. I mean, I, you, I would agree. And yes, but if I took devil's advocate, I would say. <laughs> what you love to do? They, they, they still are going to control the ownership of those songs. So at the end of the day, they still are at the end of the, like, okay, you still got to come, you got to come pay the piper. Right. right? Um, and I don't think that that's going to change until it absolutely has to. Well, and uh, plus, but you also think like, and I know there's only one Taylor Swift, but Taylor, after the whole mess with, you know, the sale of her, you know, body uh, of work from when she was 16, um, you know, she went to Universal and they allowed her to retain ownership of her own master recordings. Now that was that would never have happened a few years ago. It would have never happened. And so there way that this industry changes is if there's legislation and they're forced, or if artists are demanding change, performing artists, writers, producers. And, um, and so we're starting to see the result of that where Taylor realized when, you know, she wanted to, she didn't want to stay on big machine anymore and they wouldn't, they wouldn't let her buy back her masters. And she realized like, wow, I, I really don't have a control of this. And so she went to universal signed with them and now she's doing re-records that are getting a lot of attract, a lot of traction. Um, but I think the industry is, you know, we do even see the majors start to modify and change a little bit, but it's that big tanker, you know, you also, in the flip side of that is if you watch how much money is pouring in for rights acquisitions for music, publishing rights and master recording rights as an asset class. Um, you know, like what hypnosis is doing, Bob Dylan's catalog selling. I mean, there, there is a lot 
of money in the ownership of rights. And I don't see the major labels really moving away from that, but they still, even with Taylor, even if she owned her masters for them, you know, they get the market share based deals. So they still benefit from everything from Taylor on the market share. And, you know, and who knows how, who's, who's paying what whom in that deal. But, um, but they're absolutely, you know, a, they're able to benefit on multiple sides around. Kind of evil genius, really. <laughs> well, I mean, if, you have, if you have something of value, you, you hold on to it, right? Exactly. Uh, the worst is when that thing stops being valuable. Yeah. And it's like when you held on to uh, see a coin, you know, from way back in the early, early coin, and it's like worth nothing. You know, there's a bunch of things that are worth not but if you held on to your bitcoin you're doing all right yeah um exactly and i think it's also i think the um you know this is this is this is what the labels know you know this is what they know this is their core competency is developing artists making sound recordings marketing them getting them out there and then you know we have seen some things like the um the skateboarder with cranberry juice and Fleetwood Mac mm -hmm. that, that completely brought Fleetwood Mac's catalog out of the dusty shelves and into relevance with kids. Mm -hmm. And now people are buying concert tickets for Fleetwood Mac's tour because they've heard 40 seconds of one song in a TikTok. Video. So crazy. It's, and I can't tell you how many covers of Fleetwood Mac I've heard by young and emerging artists since then as well. Yeah, and they're probably like, wow, these songs are pretty good. Yeah, right? <laughs> well, there's a lot to do. Uh, it's good to get you out there doing that. Um, as we wrap up, what, um, what's next for you in the very near future? What, what, what are you looking forward to in 2022 since that's like a month away? It is like a month away. I'm hoping to have a little bit of downtime. I'm not sure if that's going to be possible, but, um, but I'm, I'm really excited. I'm very focused on all of the industries that are just adjacent to music, you know, mm -hmm. gaming, video, film and TV, all of these different kinds, interactive fan clubs, all of these things that are the technologies that are just around music. And I see music as being like, the salt and pepper on all of those meals, you know, mm -hmm. making them more engaging, making them more interesting, relevant. And, um, and I'm just really, really excited about how many opportunities that there are. And even though we did talk quite a bit of grousing about how complicated licensing is, I also feel like I'm having so much success getting great licenses for companies that I feel really hopeful that we're going to be able to have more and more solutions for companies of all sizes and stages of their lifespan with music. Yeah, that's great to hear. It's awesome. Well, Vicki, um, I'm sure people can find you. We'll put some show notes to Cross Border Works and let them make, make their way to you. Um, and I think we probably have always. more to talk about for a part two in the future. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Awesome. Uh, but this has been great. It's been really mm -hmm. great. And you guys have had some excellent questions. And um, 
And I, you know, I also feel like I'm almost always, whenever I give talks, I like to say to artists, you know, if Spotify and Apple music are not necessarily working for you, don't give up because there's a lot coming out on the horizon that I think are going to be more and more opportunities for you to build a, build and monetize your fans and your community and, um, and get your music out there in all sorts of exciting technologies. Can't wait. Can't wait. Me neither. <laughs> awesome. Right, so awesome talking to you, Vicki. The pleasure was ours. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Till next time. Okay. Talk to you soon. <laughs>